children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. <laughs> Walking back to Praise Factory. Uh, if you'd open your Bible to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be reading starting in verse 25. Uh, I was super happy, John. You're like, turn to Hebrews 12. And I'm like, oh, double up on the passage. He's going to say what I'm going to say. But then you didn't. You chose a different passage. And then you were like, we're going to come back. And I thought, okay, here we go. Danger. Um, we're going we're gonna to read. So it's, it's good. It's good. Uh, repetition is good from the word. But we're going to look at a, a different passage uh, to kind of guard or guide and center our thinking as we uh, consider the topic of worship this morning. Starting in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, the author says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, and we pray that, that we would not be indifferent to what you have spoken, what has been written in your word. It is a form of media, words written in a book, inspired by you and, and, and the Holy Spirit living in them and speaking them through them. Yes, that, that is true. The author is present. And yet we as humans fall victim to the danger that we can consume it just like we consume television or Facebook or novels. We can read and say that is interesting or that is true or one day I'd like to think about that or do something about it. But, but the, the, the reality of what happens when we read your word, God, is that you are speaking to us and calling us to be changed and shaped and to act. May we not think that because we can, we can read your word and, and close the, the book that, that you are not as the scripture says, a consuming fire. You are real, you are present, you are active, and you are amazing. And we can be so indifferent to you. And so as the writer says, since we receive a kingdom, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and all that exists will pass away. And you are a consuming fire. May we give you the worship and honor that you deserve. And may it begin with us not refusing you when you speak. 
lower our defenses and help us to hear your word that we might be changed and transformed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a quick review. We're going we're gonna to talk about worship in just a moment. But uh, first, I want to point out uh, one or two things that I've learned in the last week. One is that you can't see pink from the back row. Um, and so there will not be any pink marker being used this morning uh, for, for just, hey, I'm, I'm humble enough to admit when I've used the wrong color. Uh, that's nothing against pink. It's a great color. Um, but, uh, you know, you can't see it, then we're not going to use it. Uh, let's just review for a moment what we, what we talked about last week. Now, you can go and listen to the message from, from last week. I'm going to assume and act like everything last week is true and not try to, try to prove any of it. Uh, we saw that man has fallen into sin and is now dealing with shame, right? This is, this is what it means to be, to be lost. We are uh, subject to the wrath of God coming down upon us. Our works, which we were designed to, uh, to, to do in a way that pleases and honors God, are broken and tainted by our sin. We are chained. Uh, that's a... That's a prison chain ball thing ball and chain yeah we've now turned this into a marriage analogy for some reason I, I, I'm not sure why what's wrong with those four rows of chairs by the way you notice that no you can stay where you are thank you but thank you for being willing um, that and and we we live in a way that we run away from God we we hide from him we run away the scriptures sum this up by saying that we live in a place we are captured in the domain of darkness. But the good news of the scriptures is, uh, this is this is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1, uh, verses 13 and 14, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. God does this by means of the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a work of God. He is the one who initiates pursuing the, the lost sinner, the one who is running from him, created in his image, and yet that image is, is broken and, and smashed. And so, so God initiates this redemptive program whereby he sends his son Jesus to the cross to take the penalty for our sins upon himself. He dies on the cross. Sin is paid for, but when we put our faith and trust in Christ, the righteousness which Jesus had, the perfect life that he lived, is given to us. And so we are raised, the Bible says, to walk in newness of life. This guy right here, he's doing the, like, the praise God thing, you know. That's what, that's what he's supposed to be doing there. Uh, the scripture says that God comes to dwell in us in the power of the Holy Spirit when we are made new and our works now reflect the character and the glory of God because the Holy Spirit is working in us. This, you could call this the fruit of the Spirit or the works the, that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that God has, has put in our path that we might walk in them. We were created for good works. Good works don't save us, but they grow and are displayed from a life that, that honors and um, and, 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 and exalts God. When the Spirit is in us and is working, we're abiding in God's love. The works which we carry out display God's character and bring glory to Him. This is what it means to be in the kingdom of God's beloved Son. 
Now, in between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of God's beloved son is what I call no man's land. In a war, this is the, the contested territory. This is, this is the place where the battle takes place. When someone is lost and confined to the domain of darkness, uh, there, is no, there is no battle there. They are captured. The battle comes when a believer who is armed, let's use purple, with uh, the whole armor of God, right? He has taken up the sword, uh, the shield and the sword, taken up the shield of faith, uh, and then he is carrying out the, the two works which God commands the armored Christian. This is from Ephesians chapter 6. The, the, the two works that the armored Christian is supposed to engage in are that he pray and speak God's word. Speak the truth of the gospel. The Christian's mission is to move into no man's land, not to live on the mountaintop with the transfigured Jesus. Yes, we go back to the mountain and we, we see Jesus in all of his glory and we see God as a consuming fire and then we go back down into the valley. We go out into the world and we share the gospel with those who are lost that God might do his great and transforming work. As we closed last week, I asked you to commit if you had no regular ongoing plan, I asked you to commit to share, uh, to, to pray, to begin, not, not, to, not to just go right into to speaking, but to pray for five people who are not in God's kingdom. So I asked you and challenged you to do that. And I'm hoping that, uh, that some of you have committed to that. Uh, there's a place on the Connect card this morning where you could, you could check that off and say that you've committed. If you don't do it this week, next week is fine. I just, I'd love to see us as a church begin to commit to take that action step. If we believe that the gospel is important, then we will share it. So here is the question then. Is this true? Is it true? Um, the The... The writings of the scriptures are true. They are. Uh, this is one of those things that we affirm as uh, believers, that, that God's word is true and, with his, and, and is without error. And yet, so many of us, instead of going God's way, we go our way. Right? We're like, the, um, uh, we're like Frank Sinatra singing that song, I'll, I did it my way, right? Um, this, this is, we, 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 we travel our own direction, even though God's word is true. God calls us, Matthew 9, 9, he says, follow me, right? And yet we head our own way. We head in the way of our own desires and attitudes. Why is that? I think that we could say that it's a disorder. It's a, it's a disorder, We'll talk about what kind of disorder it is in a moment. But it, it does not follow the plan and purpose of God, and so it, it is a disorder. I think it comes from, from, from two factors, particularly from believers. They've, they've, they've put their faith and trust in the gospel. They've said, I want to be saved. I want to be delivered from my sins. And yet they battle with, with two distinct problems. The first one is worry. 
The first problem is, is worry. We think that following God's way, that, that, that fully being obedient will somehow ruin our lives. If we, if we dig down to the heart, we think that in this particular situation or that particular situation, if I do what God commands, then somehow I will miss out. I'll, I will uh, be rejected by my friends. I will not make money. I will lose my job. I will starve to death. We fear dying, and so we, we're, we're worried, Okay. Matthew 6.31, Jesus says, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Right? There's an, there's an active searching and looking and thinking, I must do it my way and not God's way, because his way will not work. Right? This is, I think, the kinder of, of the two problems. The more, the more uh, in line with what, what God, we want what God wants, and yet we're fearful to be fully obedient, right? There are, there are people who think, I know that God wants me to, to, to share the gospel, but I'm afraid my friends will make fun of me. Or I know that God wants me to be a missionary somewhere, but I'm afraid he's going to send me to some place where people eat bugs or where bugs will come into my house, right? That's what... That's what we, we're, we're, we're anxious and worried. On the other side, there is this independent streak that we have, uh, this rebellious inner nature that says, you know what, God commands me to do this, but I'm just not going to do it. It's like there's this area or category or, or room in our life that is locked off from God's sovereignty and his plan and his will. And we say, you know what? I'm just not going to unlock that door. I'm going to keep this key on my key ring. You can't have this area of my life. You can't. This is what the prodigal son did. He told the father, he said, I want all the blessings of being in a relationship with you, but not you. Give me the money that would come to me. And then he went and he squandered it and he lived his own way. Why, why the war? Why the worry? Why not following God in the way that we ought? I think part of, the, part of the problem is that true isn't enough of a motivator, right? The, the gas indicator on my dashboard indicates that I'm in a quarter tank of gas. But you know what? I don't listen to it. I don't listen to it even when the light comes on. I'm like, we're, well, I know how, exactly how much red until I really, really need gas because true is not enough of a motivator for me. Uh, true just describes facts, right? Facts are indicated by what you see when you step on the scale, when you look into your bank account, when you open your bills, right? It's true. Those are facts. But facts, even though they are stubborn things, they don't change our attitude many times. It's not even enough, I think, that if something is good, that something's good. True deals with facts. Good deals with whether it is positive or negative. Dieting is good, right? 
If you, if you want to lose weight, then diet, right? If you want to get a date, then like wash your face and brush your teeth, you know? Um, if you want to have money, you have to save money, right? And those things are good. And yet many times there are short-term goods, right? Uh, a friend of mine used to have this motto. She would say, be smelly, it's better, right? You know, it's, 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 it's good. It's easy, right? What, what has to happen, right? But you can't get a date if you don't wash your face, right? So there's, there's be smelly, which is, which is true and good, but it is not what's best. Uh, good is not enough of a motivator, right? Because who wants to eat salad all the time? Who's interested in eating bran muffins? Like, you know, eating healthy is not... If, if I'm interested, like, listen... You, we, when, when it comes down to, to what is good, there are many short-term goods, right? Milkshakes are good. And so we go a lot of times for what's good, even if it is not what is best. How do we, how do we motivate ourselves towards what the greater good? Towards what brings delight toward what brings joy toward what has worth or what has value i think that the secret is that it has to engage our delight i think that 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 following god's way has to burn at the deepest place in our heart and we have to say that is not what's true. That's not what's good for me, but that's what I want. That's what I, that's what I want. This is what I, I enjoy. This is what I delight in, right? Now, you can go, if, if you just want to, to be full, if you want to feel the feeling of fullness, right, you can take $10 and you can go to McDonald's and order 10 things off the value meal and you will be so full, you will feel sick. But you know what? You can go down to Jersey Mike's and you can order a number nine Club Supreme sandwich. It's got mayonnaise and, and bacon. And I always tell the lady, give me extra pickles. And then she's like, oh, extra pickles. And I said, and whatever you just thought, double that. <laughs> double that, right? It's got, it's got roast beef and Swiss cheese and turkey on it. I have never ordered another sandwich at Jersey Mike's. And I've been there like 30 times. Because it, it and I'm like, leave off the onions. And the one day the gal was like, oh, you want extra onions? And I'm like, that's not even funny. Don't mess with me. Don't. We, we pursue and crave what we delight in, what we perceive as beautiful. My, one of my sons, and I'm not, not going to name him uh, outright, but, but when he used to see a, uh, it's not him. <laughs> Don't look at him. When he used to see a pretty girl, he would start acting in a way where he was like, it's like, are you trying to hurt yourself? Like, he would do anything to just capture and hold their attention. It is not him, really. Don't look at him and think that it's, it's him. It's not. It's not. 
But, but because, because he wanted the, the gaze or the attention, he was willing to do anything, even cause himself physical harm by like falling out of a tree or, or hurting himself or, or, you know, that the desire was, 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 was willing, was, a, was an amazing motivator for him. We believe what's true. Yes, we do. We accept what's true and we say, okay, we agree with what's good. We acknowledge it. We're like, okay, bran muffins, but we desire what's beautiful. What we perceive as beautiful, we, we want to possess. We pursue it. We worship it. We worship what is good and true. And what we see as beautiful. Make sure I spell it right. Never hear the end of it if I put it up wrong. We worship that. The old wedding vows... The ones that, uh, if you watch The Crown uh, on Netflix, Queen Elizabeth II, right? You know, the wedding vows from back then, they used to include the line, with my body I thee worship. The idea that, 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 yes, I pursue you, I love you. Going our own way, pursuing our own path is a worship disorder. It's a worship disorder. The truth is, so many of us love us more than we love God. We love our way more than we love God. We don't give, perhaps, like we should to those who are in need because we have needs. We don't give to those who've hit crisis because we might have a crisis. We don't share the gospel. Think about how twisted and crazy this is. If this is true, if these people will be separated from God for all eternity, if, they, if they'll have no part in God, they'll be, they'll be forever lost and, and forever separated from Him, and forever destroyed. We don't share with them because we value them in our lives more than we value them believing the gospel. Isn't that crazy? But we, we embrace that. You know why? Because we see ourselves first and not God first. And part of it is that we fail to cultivate a heart of worship that says God is not just true. And he's not just good, but he and everything that he does and everything that he intends is beautiful and worth being part of. This is what I want to drive at with the balance of my time. That God is beautiful and to be worshipped. The human condition is one of this worship disorder. What does it say in Romans 1, 21? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Remember that? The life of God leaves the, the human being when they sin. And we're all born with this vacuum. Our hearts are darkened, claiming to be wise, 
They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We, as human beings, we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. We wall God out. We say, no, go away. And then we look at the, the created order and we look at the things that we can make out of, out of metal and steel and plastic and wood, like houses and televisions and all those things. And we say, that's what we want. We exchange the glory of God for the glory of the stuff that we've created. Now, God speaks to us in his word. One of my professors, Brad Mullen, says that God speaks to the mind to get to the heart to drive the will. God speaks to the mind to get to the heart to drive the will. Why? Because we believe and we accept what's true, but it has to sink down deep and be seen as wonderful and beautiful and good if it's going to change our behavior, right? If it's going to change our behavior, then, then we have to love it, right? Why, why is it that you'll see a guy who's just a total stupid idiot wasting his life squandering his life, doing all kinds of dumb things, and then he'll settle down and start to behave. Why? Because she is worth it. Right? She is worth it. Yes, that is my biography. Yeah, I say it's the second best decision I ever made. The first was repenting and putting my faith in Jesus because I realized, like, this is, this is good and I need this. God speaks to the mind to capture the heart and to drive the will. So let's talk about worship. Let's ask this question. We might think of, you might be used to thinking of God as true and God as good, but do you think of God as beautiful? There are, there are words in the scriptures that are beauty words. The word beauty is one. The word glory is another. A word like excellent or excellency. Words like honor and majesty. Think about God as beautiful as you, as you hear Psalm 29, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, right? What he's saying here is, is say these things about God. Attribute to him these characteristics. Ascribe them to him. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor, that's a beauty word, isn't it, of holiness. God's not just holy and pure and boring. His holiness is a thing of beauty. Isaiah 33, 17 says, Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Now, God's beauty begins in his person. God is a person. He is the most important person, right? He is, a, he is an amazing person, and we ought to see him as such, or we will fail to worship him. In James 1.13, we see that God cannot be tempted with evil. Isn't that amazing? 
Have you had that experience where you're, you're, you're doing just fine, right? You know, you're living uh, a life worthy of respect and consistent with the holiness of God. You're like, you're like, oh, you know, I'm doing well in this area that I struggle in today. You know, I'm, I, I read my Bible this morning. I prayed. I trust in, I'm trusting in God. You know, like I had a little worry attack there in the morning, but, but I managed to, to overcome that. Like I'm good. And then all of a sudden something happens and it's like your life slows down and you're like, now I see that thing. Whatever it is, insert your own temptation here. And you're like, I want that even though it's evil. That's a defect in us because of our sin. God cannot be tempted with evil. Isn't that amazing? There's something God can't do. He can't be tempted. That's not like you're not scoring any points if, if you're like, well, I know something God can't do. That's not a weakness. That's incredible. Titus 1-2 describes God as God who never lies. Well, I can tell a lie. God can't tell a lie. That also is not a weakness. Why do we tell lies? We tell lies because we're afraid, because we want to deceive people and contain, retain our power, right? Because we want to manipulate the situation. God doesn't have to do any of that. God's just like, I create the universe. And there it is, right? God says, I, I choose to destroy this nation. I choose to raise this up. I choose to save this person. And anything he wants to happen, happens. He doesn't need to lie. Lies are for weak people. Not for strong people. God's character is such that everything about him is perfectly balanced. He never loses his temper. He never responds wrong. He always has the right temperament about every situation. Exodus 34, verse 5, very similar to something that our, our, uh, our scripture memorizing gals set up here this morning. The Lord descends in the cloud. This is a cloud of his glory, not the cloud of, of rain that was supposed to destroy Salisbury last night, right? You know, um, I was... I was sitting on the couch with Hank and a big, big, you know, thunder clap sounded. And he said, is that going to break our house? <laughs> and then it was over. He forgot all about it. I said, no. So um, what do I know? You know, no, kid. You know, get to the cellar. Um, the Lord descended in the cloud, a cloud of glory, and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will, no mean by, who will by no means clear the guilty. All of God's qualities reveal his essence, and his essence is perfect and without defect. He is a perfect person. God is perfect without any defect or flaw. His love is a perfect love. His anger is a perfect anger. His mercy is perfect. Did you ever show mercy to someone and then they turn around and stab you in the back again? You're like, oh, God knows the precise amount of mercy to be applied in every situation. The perfect amount of grace. He's perfect in patience. God is also beautiful in his person in that each of the members of the Trinity reveal himself perfectly. Think about that. There are times when my children's friends come over and I'm in like silly mode and I'm like, I will say embarrassing things, right? 
my kids are like, Dad, you know, cut it out. And I'm just like saying all kinds of weird, goofy stuff. And just because I feel like, I feel like, you know, my kids have done this to me before, right? I'm going to get them back, you know? And so I'm just, but, but, but the, the members of the Trinity, they represent each other perfectly. The Son represents the Father exactly as the Father is. The Bible says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. I think of like a thumbprint. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right? On the, the night before Jesus goes back into heaven, Philip says to Jesus, okay, you're going away. You're going to send someone to us to help us understand. Not really sure how it's better for you to go away. And then he just, he says what's on his mind. He says, show us the Father and that'll be enough. Right? Just, just let us see the Father. Oh, I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, I said, oh, I would love, I'd just love it if somebody would write a book about the father's character and his, his, his behavior and his attitudes. And he called me up short. He said, how about read the New Testament and look at Jesus? Oh. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? He's not saying I am the father. He says this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Haven't I been showing you exactly what the Father is like? Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Isn't it amazing that the Father, people are like, Father, we want to see you. And he's like, hey, look over here at Jesus. He shows me. And then we're like, Jesus we want, to, we want to know the Father. And he's like, all I'm ever doing is displaying the Father's character, right? And then we're like, Spirit, you're welcome here. And the Spirit's like, don't pay attention to me. Look at Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The most perfect being in the entire universe keeps pointing away from himself to another member of himself. The Father's character is perfect Every good gift, James 1.17 says, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. When we look at the scriptures, what we see is a father who loves. Though he's been disappointed, though we've gone astray, though we've, though we've shaken our fist in his face and said, I refuse to do what you say the Father still loves. Second, we see a son who saves. A son who, when the Father says to the Trinity in his inward counsel before all time, we will create the world and it will go astray and they will all be lost unless we save them, the Father says as he initiates this conversation, the son says, I will go. I will save them. And the delights the father's heart. And then we see the spirit who empowers. Who says, though, because of sin, we left living in the human beings. Because their sinfulness, we, we retreated, we left, they died 
Once they are declared righteous, the Spirit says, I will go back in, I will take up residence, I will dwell within them again and empower them and shape them and change them. The person of Jesus Christ is the apex or the the focus of the beauty of who God is. He's the clearest revelation of him. We see him as right and as kind. We see him as true and as good in the scriptures. But when we see that, do we see it as beautiful? When we look at the life of Jesus in the scriptures, do we, do we look at each and every single one of these instances and say, how does this reflect the beauty and amazing character of God? Think about how kind he is to people who hate him. Think about how, how he speaks the, the exact words that they, that they need to know. The, the rich young ruler comes to him and says, I've obeyed you completely, which isn't true. I've obeyed, I've obeyed God completely. What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus tells him exactly what he must do. Throw away your idols and follow me. And the man goes away and Jesus is compassionate and cares for him because he loved him. It's amazing. So what is our response of worship then to the, the person of God? Have you ever noticed that when you get a telescope that it has a uh, written on the lens, there's a, there's a magnification written on the lens? You ever notice that? Isn't that weird? I thought microscopes magnified things, like a magnifying glass. No, telescopes magnify too. But their magnification magnifies down so that it can be it can be apprehended so that it can be comprehended. Like if you had a, a telescope that made the sun bigger, right? It would like burn. Don't look at the sun in your telescope, kids, if you're in the room. What, what we want to do is we want to look into the, the compression of God's character. What the, the telescope, which, which crunches God down into language and bits and words that we can see and absorb so that when we behold him as he is, not with our just, you know, not with our, not, not, with, not with our sense of, of, I think I feel God in the wind and in the trees, and this is what I think he's like. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. We see and, and know God in his word, and it, 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 it narrows him down. It boxes him in. It magnifies him so that we can look at, at his character on display and say, you are amazing. So celebrate and magnify him in his word. God's character as he reveals it. Celebrate. Second, we see God's beauty in his purpose. We see God's beauty in his purpose. Now, God's purpose and plan, theologically speaking, is a controversial issue because the minute that we begin to talk about election or predestination or God's sovereign choice, people are like, oh, no, if God chooses, then he's not good, right? I don't understand or know how this works, but I do know what is and is not true. I know that God is in control of everything, 
God is, is never for a minute off of his throne. He's never, not for a second, not completely in control of everything. The Bible says that, that not a sparrow falls without his permission, that all of the hairs of your head are numbered. Not even your mom loves you that much to count all of your hairs. And think about it. By the time that she was done counting all the hairs on your head, she'd have to count them again, right? At least mine would because I would probably have lost some in the meantime, right? I mean, it's my self-deprecating bald joke. You're supposed to <laughs> laugh at that. Um, I see myself in pictures, and I'm like, who's that bald guy? And there I am. It's me. God has a perfect purpose, and his purpose is to bring glory to himself, now that might bother you. You might say, why is God so self-centered? Who does he think he is? It's like he thinks he's God's gift to the universe, right? That's a phrase that we use. God is God's gift to the universe. He is the most perfect, ultimate, good thing that's out there. He does everything well. Without him, we are nothing. And so God rightly says, focus on me Focus on my ways. Focus on the redemption that I bring. Focus on the strength that I give. Because when we pay attention to him, when we lift him up as the center and as the greatest thing, everything else falls into place. Listen to the affirmation of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And all who comes to me, I will never cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is God's purpose? God's purpose is to glorify himself. God's purpose is to save for himself. I don't know if this is good grammar or not. Save for himself a people. And God's glory or God's purpose is that we would be conformed to the, I'm just going to say image, I'm running out of space, the image of Christ. That we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29 says this, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he also justified, he glorified. God's plan for you, God's purpose for you, is that you resemble the most beautiful thing in the universe, and that is his son. God wants you. Think about that. It's not that God is saying, look at me, I'm beautiful, you pathetic, miserable peasants. Behold me and my glory and be amazed and stay as you are. No, God says that when we behold 
His son with eyes of faith. When the veil of sin is removed, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. A progressive growth in glory as we are changed, as we, as we take these stair steps up. Uh, not that we can measure by our own human standards and say, oh, look, you know, Keith is really growing in this way or that way. We can see some progress, but God is the one who knows how our heart and our mind and our will are being changed. To worship is not just to stand up and to sing praise, but to say, God, you want to shape me into the image of your son? That's what you want me to be like? You're going to change me into that image as I put my faith and trust in you? That's amazing. I think that's beautiful. A lot of times, don't the pretty people just want to be celebrated and delighted and enjoyed for themselves? They're not like, hey, I have an idea. How about everybody was as beautiful or as handsome as I am? They don't do that. They would lose their place. God shares. He'll always be at the center because he'll always be greater because of who he is. But his purpose is to make us into the image of his son. God also displays his beauty in his performance. This is a fancy theological word that starts with P. You know, they got to be four Ps. It's just got to be the way it is. God's, God's performance, this describes his acts. God's beauty is displayed in creation. You ever seen a picture of Victoria Falls in, uh, in, 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 why can't I think of the name of the town? Where is it? In, uh, it's in Zambia. Come on, it's not Lusaka, that's the capital, but good try. Um, that's the name of a queen, I think. Uh, Victoria Falls, where is it? Livingston, yeah, the white guy who's like, who's like, yeah, okay, good, yes, yes. Um, if you've ever seen a picture of Victoria Falls and you're like, oh, I see that, I understand it, like Keith took video on his phone and wow, that sounds loud, you, you have no idea what it's like to stand there and to see it and to see the rain hitting the, the ground and then coming up. It rains up at Victoria Falls, it's crazy. You've, I've heard this, that people see the, the Grand Canyon and they're like, it looks real, but it can't be real. Nothing could be that big or huge. That's amazing. God, in his perfect triunity, created an amazing world, a natural order that, that begins with a perfect creation, right? It is infinite, it feels like, both up and down. When we, when we look up into the universe and we see galaxies and stars, we're like, uh, when we invent telescopes, we're like, they must just be little pinpricks on paper, right? You know, and then you find out that there are these huge things like the sun with planets or, uh, circling them. It's amazing. It's like the universe is just infinite in every space. And then, and then Darwin, when he writes his book, The Origin of the Species, says the simple cell is the building block of life, right? The simple cell. And he just imagined that cells are like Legos and that every animal is constructed out of them. But then you dig into the cell and it's like now we got all these parts and pieces inside of there and they're made out of something that's made out of something else. Protons, neutrons, and I'll tell you what, this is what I believe. I think there's like 72 layers of stuff underneath that. 
Scientists are going to be like, we're building this massive microscope to understand the, the final building block or level, and they're going to find something else under there. It's infinite all the way down. God creates this amazing order, and he, uh, he concludes it. He creates as the pinnacle mankind, humankind, who reflect God's image. God crowns his creation with a copy of himself. Now, the mistake that we make is to see the wonder of the natural order, to see the beauty out there and to say, that's amazing, and to miss the glory of the one who created us. So we see God's beauty in creation, but we ruined creation, didn't it? Didn't we? Not only with our moral character, but with our acts. We've slowly but continuously messed up this world, right? And I mean messed up this world not just in a, you know, you can't drink water out of the river kind of a way, but in a way like, you know, why are there so many people who are starving? And somebody's like, hey, I have an idea. Let's share our food. Let's ship rice to Africa. And then some warlord hoards it all, and it doesn't ever get to the people who need it. We've messed this thing up. But God is doing an amazing work of redemption. He begins, this is, by the way, the collective activity of the work of God. If you want to see uh, this written in poetic form, look at the the first verses. I think it's uh, chapter uh, 1 of Ephesians from verse 3 to about verse 14. It's just a beautiful hymn of the, the work of the Father, then the work of the Son, and then the work of the Spirit in salvation. Humans create sin as a product in what God created. And then God produces redemption in the world on the cross. It begins with regeneration. God rebirthing the image of himself in us by the power of the Spirit. It begins with regeneration. And it ends with something called glorification. This is when we meet him, the scripture says we will be like him, that God is is refashioning and shaping us, that we might be like Jesus. So what is our response to this, to God's performances? We ought to see his beauty and we ought to say, you know what? We've been given this world. We've been given a world filled with people created in God's image. Here's uh, a man and here's a woman that triangle. It's such a dress. Um, it's, it's not drawn. Like, I don't do style. I do doodles. And this is the earth, right? Here's South America and here's North America and here's Africa and here's Europe. Um, anyway. There's, there's land there, right? Um, so, so, so what we ought to do is we ought to care for this thing that we've been given. And yes, that means be kind to animals and don't dump you know, stuff anywhere on the ground on the Eastern Shore because it goes to the Chesapeake Bay and kills everything. But it also means be kind to the humans. Love one another. Care for one another. And one of the ways, the greatest way in which we can do this is to share the gospel. God has done this redemption work. The greatest way that we can respond to his work is with our own work of sharing. And it is scary. Okay, look, I got my five right here. I wrote five names down. Took me all week to think of 
Who are the people that I know who probably know nobody else who's going to share the gospel with them? And unless I do it, they're going to go to hell. Summoning the courage, building the relationship, and speaking and speaking and speaking and urging them and pleading them to be reconciled to God is a way of responding to what he's done. It's an act of worship. And it is incredibly important as a church. Finally, we see God's beauty in providence in our circumstances. I've used up all my time. I'm not going to go much longer. But Romans 8.28 says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Think about Joseph, who when he was in Egypt, right, you know, he was sold into slavery. He was, um, he was wrongfully accused. He was, he was left in prison for years, and God exalted him to the place where he was over Egypt. He was in charge of famine relief in Egypt. And, uh, yeah, I have to tell this story because I want to draw the picture. Um, there we go, a little pyramid right there. There's our camel. All right, there we go. So, so think, about, think about Joseph who was sold into slavery and who was accused of a crime and who suffered in prison. And when he was exalted to the highest place in Egypt and his brothers came to him for food, and, and I'm sure this was a traumatic difficult experience he looked at the circumstances of his life and he knew what we would know in clearest measure that God works all things for good to those who are called according to his purpose and when his father died right about when we would be hatching our godfather scheme right like I am going to kill all my brothers for what they did to me They come to him and they say, please forgive us. Joseph weeps. This is his character. He sees the beauty and the activity of God in his life. Joseph wept when he spoke to them. His brothers came, fell down before him and said, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is what Joseph and his brothers didn't know. They thought they were just throwing their annoying brother into a pit and getting rid of him because they hated him. Let's sell him into slavery and and get, get rid of him. But God took Joseph and sent him into Egypt as a secret agent. He didn't even know that he had a mission but he put him in a place where, where God's people, who would eventually, over the years, in this nation, uh, this, the nation would give birth to Jesus, and he would save the world. In order to preserve them alive from famine, God destroyed Joseph's life, sent him into slavery. And Joseph looks back on his life with eyes of faith and says, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that is beautiful. And he forgave them. Thomas Watson says this, Dejection in the godly, despair, depression in the godly arises from a double spring, either because their inward comforts are darkened, their inner spiritual sense is not looking with eyes of faith, 
or their outward comforts are disturbed. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough this. We don't have enough that. My life's not perfect. But eyes of faith look back to Romans 8.28. It's like God works everything for good. There is good in this. I will trust. And so it is an act of worship to remember and to remind yourself of the goodness of God and to reflect on that. As we close, this is what the psalmist says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. As a church, we worship when we see God working and shaping the circumstances of our lives that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. When we see what he's done in creation and in redemption and we say, I should love my neighbor as myself. Listen, folks, loving people is loving God. We'll talk about that, I think, in two weeks. When we love others, we love God. And we love them greatest and best by sharing with them this incredible message. When we look at God and we say his purpose is to conform me to the image of Christ, and so I will abide in his love and trust in him by faith and be conformed to his image. And I will do all those things by looking at him and marveling at his beauty. These are acts of worship. As a church, we're going to sing. And I'm always tempted, like, oh, I talked too long. Close the last, skip the last song. And we're going to sing. We're going to celebrate together the work of God, his person, his beauty, all the, the good things that he's done for us, the blessings that he's given to us. God is pleased with the worship of his people, only a part of which is praise. But when you sing, isn't it so much different than just speaking? God speaks to the mind to capture the heart, to direct the will. Let's focus our wills on him as we close in singing this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness toward us. We thank you that you've worked in us, that you work through us, we thank you that your plan and your purpose is to show us your glory and then to glorify us. Never the same as you'll be glorified because you in your nature are amazing and beautiful and we are adopted into that and shaped and changed by it. Father, we pray that, that we would live in the good of this and celebrate it and delight in it. Father, may you be pleased with us as we, as we declare our love for you by our love for others, and particularly by sharing the gospel. May we fight off despair and anxiety and self and depression with a rehearsal of all the ways that you've been good to us. And when called to give an account of our faith, may we point to you and your goodness and your truth, but especially to your incredible beauty. We pray this, Lord, knowing that you're good, knowing that you're true, and professing that you are worthy of honor and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing as we close.